there is classes, yeah? Yeah, so classes can go out with Jess. I invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Acts again. Acts chapter 24. And we will read. I'm going to read from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. I beg your pardon. We're going to read from verse 10. Actually, verse 10 down to the end of the chapter. And once you found your place, would you stand with me? And we'll read God's word together. The word of God says, And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city itself, nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse me. But I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and before other people always. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to have been bringing charges if they should have anything against me, or else have these men themselves declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council." other than in regard to this one declaration which I shouted while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having quite accurate knowledge about the way, adjourned them, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from providing for his needs. Now after some days, sorry, now some days later, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing, discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and responded, go away for now, and when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and talk with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul in prison. And we trust that God will have blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. In my studies this week, I was struck by the contrast of these two main characters, Felix and Paul. Two men, both citizens of Rome, both slaves, Felix a slave to sin and Paul a slave to Christ and righteousness. First, there's Paul, 
the apostle and bondservant of Jesus Christ, born of pure Jewish lineage, a Pharisee and a free Roman citizen. He was raised by devout Jewish parents and trained and educated in the school of Gamaliel. He had the, the best university education you could want of his time. He was arguably one of the most learned men of his time, yet at that time he persecuted the early church, bent on its destruction. Confronted and saved by Christ, he immediately went from persecuting Christ and his church to preaching Christ and his gospel. Paul lived as a follower, an apostle, and a slave to Jesus Christ. He lived with the highest level of personal integrity, striving always to maintain a clear conscience toward God and men. He was born a citizen of Rome and died a citizen of heaven. And there's Claudius Felix, and there's a bunch of debate between scholars about the exact details of his life, but as best I understand it, it's like this. He began as a slave in Rome. He was freed from slavery by Caesar Tiberius Claudius, and he was renamed, given the name Claudius to go with his own name, so he became Claudius Felix, bearing his Savior's name. Now, I thought that was really interesting. Felix was given the governorship of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Patria at the request of a Jewish high priest whose name was Jonathan. And Felix later repaid the favor by having Jonathan assassinated and killed because Jonathan got a little too critical of Felix's way of governing. Felix, with the help of a Cyprian magician, lured the beautiful Jewess named Drusilla away from her first husband to marry him. And she was the third of his three aristocratic marriages. She was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, whose opposition to the gospel and his rather grisly death is recorded in Acts 12, verses 1 to 23. And you can check it out. He's the one that had James arrested and put to death with a sword. He arrested Peter, but Peter, by God's amazing divine intervention, rescued him out of prison. Drusilla also was the sister of both Herod Agrippa II and his wife Bernice. And you can figure out the... the, grossness of that relationship. Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, and he wielded the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. His political political connections gave him a sense of invincibility and encouraged cruelty over all those that he governed. Felix lived as a tyrannical, corrupt, cruel, bribe-taking governor, utterly lacking in integrity. He was born a slave in Rome and died a slave to sin. To summarize, both of these men that are in our story this morning experienced a vastly different type of salvation from each other with equally different results. Felix was slave... Try it again. Felix was saved... Uh, by the Caesar and given a new name and great power. But Paul was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ from slavery to sin and death and given eternal life and the hope of resurrection and glory. Felix was saved from the depths of slavery to the heights of Roman power and influence. But Paul was saved from the heights of Judaism's power and influence to live as Christ's bond slave and apostle. Felix's salvation served only to worsen his cruel and corrupt character, but Paul's salvation brought an entirely new life, a new character, and great hope. 
Felix's salvation was temporal and short-lived. But Paul's salvation was temporal and eternal. Felix's salvation raised him up to sit in the governor's seat. But Paul's salvation raised him up to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So which one would you rather be? It's easy when you read the story in the book, you think, I'd rather be Claudius, you know, I mean, the Felix. He's just up there in power, controlling everything. Until you realize that Felix was very much a slave to sin, and Paul, the one in change, was very much the freedman in front of him. So, which one would you rather be? Here in our text, God purposefully, sovereignly brings these two men together. And God works through Felix to keep Paul under house arrest, simultaneously using Paul to frequently talk to Felix about the gospel, faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And while Felix became frightened at the prospect of God's punishment, sadly, there is no record of his ever coming to faith in Christ. And the way Luke writes the story is quite interesting. It's sort of drawn out and all of a sudden just finishes. And Festus succeeded him and he's gone. That's it. There's a message in that too. There is no record of his ever coming to faith in Christ. You've got to remember that the unrepentant sinners have no fear of God before their eyes as the book of Romans and chapter 3 tells us. So what spiritual reality is the spirit of God portraying for us in this text? And I would answer that the text brings us a warning of knowing but never believing the gospel. Have you heard the gospel? It's great. Do you understand the gospel? Even better. Have you seen the gospel on display in Christian lives around you? Maybe you have and maybe you haven't. Maybe you've seen very poor demonstrations of the Christian faith around you. But at the end of the day... The question remains for all of us, do you believe the gospel? And by believe, I don't mean just knowledge it with your head. I mean believe has has had a powerful and dramatic influence on your life to radically change your life. Like Paul, the heights of Judaism's power and influence to being a slave in chains and absolutely free in Christ. Changed him. Without genuine belief in the gospel this morning, whether you like it or not, you stand in Felix's shoes. For he knew the gospel, he understood the gospel, he'd observed the gospel in people's lives, but he never came to faith in Christ. And that's the tragedy of Felix's life. I want you to notice, first of all, that he understood the gospel. The conclusion of verse 21, Felix is in a bit of a dilemma because in chapter 23 and 29, Commander Lysias had found Paul undeserving of death and imprisonment and so rescued him and delivered him to Felix. If Lysias is right, Claudius, or sorry, Felix should have released Paul. But, or in addition to that, in Acts 23 and verse 9, the Pharisees and the council found no fault in Paul. He should have released him. In 24 verses 2 to 9, Tertullus' skilled oratory, which we looked at last week, failed to prove Paul's guilt. And yet, Felix was also very wary of the powerful pro-Roman Ananias sitting right in front of him. And the problem was to release Paul or to not release him. That was Felix's question and dilemma. And so what did he do? He simply adjourned. He put it off. 
But notice what it says in verse 22. It says, Felix, having a quite accurate knowledge about the way, adjourned him. And the way the structure of that works is it's not merely a political reason that Felix keeps Paul there. Literally, the verse means understanding accurately the facts concerning the way Felix adjourned. So it wasn't merely a legal, political conundrum. There was something about this short, nearsighted, stooped, weather-beaten Jew and his fearless presentation of the gospel before the very men who were bent on his destruction that caused Felix to hesitate. There's something about him. You ever meet Christians like that? I remember the week I came to know Christ, I met Christians like that. I thought they were all weird people. No offense. I met this, these weird people at a camp, and they showed love to this little Aussie kid in Canada who spoke funny as far as they were concerned. And they showed love and kindness and grace. And there was something about them. I later discovered what it was. It was the Spirit of God in them. Something about Paul made Felix hesitate. Luke somehow discovered and recorded for us that Felix understood accurately the facts concerning the way. Part of his motive in detaining Paul was this accurate understanding. He possessed a precise, accurate knowledge of the facts. How is that possible? It's speculative, but possible he'd learned it from Drusilla, his Jewish wife. We're simply not told, but some scholars would say that's the case. If it was the influence of Drusilla, the his wife, then let me just stop for a second on that little point and offer some encouragement to those here who have unbelieving, even antagonistic spouses. Be encouraged, sister. Be encouraged, brother. Don't stop in your faithful, prayerful, wise living and speaking the gospel to your unbelieving husband or wife. You have no idea how the Lord is going to use your witness in his or her life. Be faithful. Keep going. Trust the Lord and make the gospel known in your life and your words. Know that the Lord sees and hears your tearful prayers and faithful love and words to him or her about the Lord. He will answer those prayers in his time. But to go back to Felix... His understanding of the facts concerning the way had made no difference to his life, his character, his thinking, his speaking and behaving. Understanding the facts of Christ, the Bible, and the gospel is not salvation. Salvation is a result of God's work in our hearts to make us alive in Christ. To open the eyes of our hearts to incline us to Christ and the gospel so that we believe the gospel and we repent of sin and believe the message. Genuine salvation is evidenced by a spirit-filled, God-changed life. Knowing the facts, understanding them, even being able to preach or explain or defend them is not salvation. It's a changed life. It's the spirit of God within. So my dear friends sitting here listening or perhaps watching on the video, has there been a work of God in your heart? Do you just know the facts? Or do you truly believe and know and trust and love Christ and the gospel? The proof is not in your ability to state the facts, but in the life of faith and hope and love and joy in which you live. 
Notice, secondly, the gospel observed. To recap a little bit from last week, in Acts 24, verses 14 to 18, Paul's witness of a gospel-driven life. He'd witnessed not only to the gospel, but he believed, but how it had changed his life. He worshipped and served the one true God according to the gospel. He hoped in God for the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He maintained a clear conscience. He sacrificially and practically loved his brothers in Christ, bringing gifts to Jerusalem for the poor. He declared his belief at any cost. You got to stop for a moment and just think about Paul. In that courtroom, all those people, as we understand it, he's the only one there who has a faith in Jesus Christ. And unwavering, unhesitating, he makes his defense. He makes his confession of faith literally out of the text. That's overwhelming. And yet he stands there. He declared his belief at any cost. Felix had observed this as Paul spoke in the trial. And for two long years, Felix had often met and talked with this apostle of Christ and had the opportunity to observe the living life of Christ in this man. If your workmates or your neighbors or your unbelieving family were polled, how would they describe your life? What would they say? Felix saw it. He saw and heard in Paul something more than just a Jewish rebel looking to make trouble. He saw the living life of Christ in this old man. But he had not been moved to believe the gospel that Paul believed. He was not moved or shifted to repent of his sin as Paul was repenting. To love the Lord as Paul loved him. To worship the Lord as Paul worshipped him worshipped him, and to have the same hope that Paul had. My dear friends, especially younger ones who have grown up in a Christian home, listen, there is a very real danger that observing your parents' lives and imitating their actions and repeating their words that you may deceive yourself into thinking that you're saved. Beware the danger of living of close enough to believers to observe them and imitate them and yet be outside the faith. Being parents of or children of or family of believers is not salvation. Salvation from God's wrath, from sin, from death and hell is in truly believing the gospel and truly repenting of sin. Is that your experience today? Notice thirdly, the gospel explained. Notice again in verses 24 and 25, Luke writes, Some days later, Felix came down with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. First of all, Paul speaks of faith in Christ. God in the very person of Christ is the object of our faith and our belief. Faith is the active trust we place in him who is able to keep his promises. Hebrews 11 gives illustration after illustration of this. By faith they acted. Noah believed God was indeed bringing the flood and so he continued to build the ark to the saving of his family. 
I can imagine his neighbors, right? Yeah, your neighbors get mad when you do things in the yard that's a little messy. There's Noah out there hammering away and planing away and sawing away. And his neighbors are coming out. Look at this gigantic boat in their yard. What are you doing? You foolish old man. It's never rained. What are you talking about? A flood. And one day all the animals came walking down the street and up into the ark. You could just see him sitting there looking and wondering what in the world. And a few days later, what's that water falling out of the sky? It's not stopping. By faith, they believed and continued. By faith, Noah believed God was bringing a flood and he built an ark. In verses 8 to 11, Abraham believed God would keep his promise of a son. And so he and Sarah continued to do what was physically required. And one day a son came. In verses 17, Abraham believed God was able to raise his promised son from the dead. And so he proceeded with offering up and so on. All through that list, by faith, they obeyed. And listen, brothers and sisters, because we believe that Christ is returning, he will gather all the history of mankind all together in one place. He will divide them into saved and lost to condemn the lost and glorify the saved. And so we live by faith. We continue to live by faith in God who saves us. We strive or we ought to be striving for lives of holiness and obedience. We live with hope in his glorious physical return. We live with joy in his continual abiding presence within. Faith is an active trust. By faith, we act. But faith is also the assurance, the conviction, that what we are hoping for through God's promises, God is all-powerfully able to provide. Faith, by the way, is not the absence of doubts. Faith is our conviction, our assurance in the face of our doubts that what God promises in his scriptures, God is able to do. Despite all the, quote, evidence to the contrary, I am absolutely convinced that God is able to keep his promises and God does keep his promises, every single last one of them. But why do we need such faith? Why does Luke write about faith first? Paul presented and explained the gospel to them. And as Paul's custom was, he presented the gospel to them to speak into their context. His message fit his hearers and their circumstances. Brothers and sisters, that's a reminder to us that our presentation of the gospel must contain unwaveringly the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of the gospel aimed to answer and meet their context. In Athens, Paul referenced their idolatry and then creation and quoted Greek poets. In Jewish synagogues, Paul began with the Old Testament and God's plan and purpose for Israel in Christ, the Messiah of all. Here he seems to present the gospel in response to their lifestyles. Look what he's saying. Why do we need to have faith in Christ? Well, firstly, because of righteousness. We need faith in God because of righteousness. You say, how in the world does that work? Righteousness is our adherence to what is required according to a standard of uprightness and justice and fairness and moral correctness. Righteousness is the moral perfection God requires of all humanity. God spells out what he requires in his law, both the Decalogue and what's written in our hearts on our consciences. But we have all, 
Every last one of us failed to meet God's standard of righteousness. We've all worshipped and idolized a creature, not God the creator. We've all failed to love God with our whole hearts, whole soul, whole mind, and whole strength. We've all lied about something one time or another. If you affirm to me you've never lied, you probably just did, which means that you've lied and you're back at the beginning. We've all coveted. We've all wanted or lusted after something or someone whom God has not given to us. Not one person from the beginning of creation to today except Jesus Christ has ever kept the law perfectly for the entirety of their lives, conception to death, not one but Christ. We're all unrighteous. But Christ was and is and always will be righteous. The great news of the gospel of faith in Christ is that Christ's righteousness can be applied to our lives, our accounts. Christ has lived in perfect, righteous obedience. He died on a cross in continued, unwavering obedience to his Father. He died on the cross to meet God's demand for justice for our sin. And because he had no sin of his own to die for, he was raised from the dead. Christ's righteousness can be applied to all who believe in him. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's the riches of the glory of God's grace to us in Christ, isn't it? We filthy sinners, unrighteous before God, never once keeping all the law, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his death can be applied to our account. And we can stand before God and God can put the rubber stamp on our lives. Righteous in my sight. And the one whom God has declared righteous, who will bring a charge? Nobody can bring a charge because God knows everything about our lives in the most utmost perfect and complete detail. The application of God's righteousness to us is called justification. It happens immediately and completely the moment we believe. Listen to what the Bible says in Galatians 2.16. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Galatians 3.11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the scripture says, the righteous man shall live by faith. In Galatians 2 verse 20, it's a great verse of the gospel. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You've never experienced love until you experience a love of God in Christ. There are a lot of things that we will do for love. We'll buy our wives flowers and we'll buy them expensive jewelry and we'll do all sorts of fun things. And Our wives do all sorts of great things for us out of love. But when you turn to look at the cross, for God so loved the world, that he gave. Not just something that was cheap and easy. Or cheap and fading. Or cheap and going to pass away and die and wilt. He gave us his only begotten son. Gave him. That whosoever believes. Will not perish. But have everlasting life. That's the gospel. 
Paul speaks of righteousness to Felix and Drusilla, and I'm convinced from reading Romans that his speaking to them included God's requirement of righteousness in all of us, our utter lack of it, but God's grace in applying Christ's righteousness to us through our faith in him. My friend, is that your experience? Have you, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? If you are, then know for a certainty that righteousness of God has been applied to you. It has been completely and immediately applied to your account. If you were to die today in faith, you would be declared righteous in God's sight and know his presence for all eternity. Thirdly, there's Paul's explanation of self-control. Paul spoke of self-control to Felix and Drusilla, whose unbridled lust had led led to Drusilla's divorce and remarriage to Felix. And having declared us righteous by his grace through faith in him, God calls us to live lives of self-control. Just as surely as Claudius Felix was required to live his life in such a way as to reflect positively on his savior, Caesar Tiberius Claudius, Seeing that he'd been given Claudius' name for himself, so also, brother and sister in Christ, all who trust in Christ and call themselves Christian are to live a life to bring glory and honor to Christ, to live righteously. All of us. That's the call of God in our life. Listen to what the Bible says. Sorry, the self-control is one of those evidences of the ever-increasing influence of the Holy Spirit with whom we are filled at the moment of our justification. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is Felix's problem. He's heard the gospel, he's seen the gospel, he understands the facts concerning the way, but he never combined hearing and understanding and observing with faith in God. There was never that application of his own life to believe the gospel, to trust in Christ for salvation. The Bible says in Galatians 5, 22 to 25, you probably know this one well, the fruit or the evidence of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Listen, Christian. This has been rattling around the back of my mind for a couple of weeks now. I was chatting with Poovin with it last Sunday. Salvation isn't merely our rescue from God's wrath to live exactly the way we did before we came to faith in Christ. We're saved from wrath and sin and we are saved into a life of righteousness and holiness and godliness. We're saved to be different from the world. We're saved to live lives that reflect and honor and imitate the one who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So we're given the name Christian. The problem is if our name tag is the only thing that says Christian about us, there's something terribly wrong. Amen? Yeah. Is that your experience? 
Or have you and I taken the Lord's name as our identifier in vain? The Old Testament law says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It doesn't so much mean saying, Oh my God. It means taking Christ's name as your own and not living according to that name. Have you and I taken the Lord's name as our identifier in vain? I have no doubt that as Paul spoke of faith in Christ, their consciences were pricked and provoked. As he spoke more about righteousness, their conscience again was pricked, knowing their own lives. And speaking of self-control, again their conscience is provoked. And then Paul goes on in the fourth part of speaking of the coming judgment. To Felix and Drusilla, it's a sharp, uncomfortable reminder that for all we do in this life, we will give an account to God in a coming day. The Bible clearly teaches that there will be a day of judgment. It's not a very popular message anymore. It's been left behind. We want to talk about how wonderful salvation life is and how easy the Christian life is and how believing in Jesus and everything will be okay. I'd like to tell you that believing in Jesus, your troubles just began. The difficulties began, but the difference is you go through them with the Lord of glory beside you, the Spirit of God in you. Listen, there is a day of coming judgment. You know, as Paul says, I have a hope in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. I'm looking forward to the day when Christ comes and gathers all his people together and clearly identifies those who are sheep and those who are goats. And I know for a certainty because of what the scriptures teach me, because my hope is in Jesus that I will be gathered as one of his sheep to stand alongside of him one of his own. But there is a day coming. The Bible tells us in Psalm 1 verses 5 and 6, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In Ecclesiastes 3 verses 16 and 17, Solomon said, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon again says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. So yes, we will all stand before the judgment throne of God. And for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, rescued and declared righteous for those not cast away. In Acts 10 and verse 42, Peter declares to Cornelius and the Romans that God ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And Paul says, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10, Paul says, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is surely a day of judgment coming, not under ignorant, corrupt, treacherous, politically-minded, bribe-taking judges like Felix, but under the judgment of the all-knowing, all-powerful, absolutely just, righteous, and holy God. There will be no lawyers in motions. 
There'll be no plea bargains or reduced and suspended sentences. No punishing of the victims to protect the guilty. God will gather all humanity ever conceived and God will divide them saved from loss. He will condemn the lost to eternal hell and he will glorify the saved into an eternal heaven. That's the truth of the Bible. No doubt Felix was alarmed and frightened by God's words. But listen, fear of of punishment is not the biblical fear of God, the fear of the Lord. The final culminating mark of sinners that Paul lays out in Romans 3, 15 to 18, is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Job 28, verse 28, God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. In Proverbs 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. 23 and verse 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Felix was frightened by the realization that he would one day stand before God to give an account of his life, his words, his actions, and his thoughts. But being frightened of punishment is not the same as the fear of God. Because the fear of God causes us to turn away from evil, to hate evil, to have a strong confidence in God. It leads to life. And this is the great tragedy of Felix. And this is my concern for us, brothers and sisters, that we fall into the same shoes as Felix fell because we understand, we know, we can articulate the gospel with great accuracy. But knowing it and understanding it and observing it is not salvation. It's believing and living according to it. Felix could have and should have and ought to have run to God for salvation. God, in tremendous grace, doesn't give Felix the gospel once in one trial for a short space of time. He gives him the undivided attention of Paul for two long years. It's the second longest time that Paul will spend in one place in all of his travels and time in the New Testament. And Felix again and again calls him to talk with him, and he enjoys listening to him. It's kind of like Herod and John the Baptist. Remember back then? I did a little interesting study. You want to do an interesting study? Look at Herod and John the Baptist, Pilate and Jesus, and Felix and Paul. They've all got wives that influence them one way or the other. Very interesting little study. And Herod, I think, enjoyed talking to John the Baptist, and I'm sure Felix enjoyed talking to Paul, but he would not take that step across to abandon his sin, to love the Lord, to cry out to God for salvation. I think he knew it would cost him a lot. But look what it cost him in the end. He was frightened by the realization that he would one day stand before God to give an account. But being frightened of punishment is not the same as the fear of God. Felix, instead of turning to God for salvation, sends Paul away, hoping Paul will offer him a bribe. No change. None whatsoever. Tragically. 
God in grace, like we said, left Paul in, in, in Felix's prison for two years talking often. Paul has faithfully, boldly spoken and explained the gospel to Felix. But Felix, still in love with his sin, is unwilling to turn away from it and flee to the very one who is his judge and could also be his savior. That's the reality of that great day of judgment, isn't it? We will stand before God. So will the unbelieving people of this world. And he will be their judge and he will be our judge, but he'll be our savior and not theirs. My dear friends, don't be a Felix. He understood accurately the the facts regarding the way and the gospel. He observed the gospel in the life and words of Paul. He heard the gospel explained to him by the master, teacher, and apostle Paul. But the great tragedy is he ignored and rejected and dismissed it. And that's what you have in the last couple of verses, 25 to 27. He sent Paul and his convicting message away. He met often with him to discuss those things. But still in the grip of his sin and depravity, all he was interested in was a cash bribe. What a tragedy. So which one would you rather be? Now here's a harder question. Which one are you? Felix ignored rather than respond to the message. There's no record of faith, repentance, or salvation for him. So what about you and me? Do we have a genuine faith in God? There is no evidence whatsoever of repentance in Felix's life. But brother and sister, do we bear the evidence and fruit of repentance toward God? Felix hoped that Paul would bribe him to be released. This may sound cynical, but I believe Paul, he wanted Paul to behave as corruptly as he did to soothe his troubled conscience and push away his words. There's an argument in the scholars that Paul had come into a considerable amount of money because of the way he paid for a number of different things at this latter part of his life. So quite possibly Paul had the means to buy his way out of there. But Paul, in unwavering steadfastness for Christ, would not do it. He would not give him the bribe that he wanted. And he stayed in that jail. And every time Felix called for him, he testified to the gospel again and again and again. And one day he got the word that Felix was gone. There was a new governor in town. We never hear in the page of scripture what happened to Felix Uh, understanding from history as he went back to Rome, recalled to Rome because of problems in his governorship. He escaped that recall with his life, but that's all. And as far as we know, he died a slave to sin. Brother and sister in Christ, Felix has come and Felix is gone. We're still here. What are you going to do with your life? Is your life going to be marked by repentance of sin and faith in Christ? A changed life, an unwavering, unshifting testimony for God and the gospel? Or are you going to push it away, knowing all the facts, but never believing it? That's the question for all of us to answer.
It doesn't matter whether you're a member or a visitor or a pastor or an elder. That's a question we must answer. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one more song. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks and we praise you again, O God, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you. We give thanks. We bow, O God, in worship before you, for we recognize immediately that in our lives, in our actions, our thoughts, our words, there is nothing that marks righteousness. But, Father, we give thanks and we glorify you, O God, this morning because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. Those of us who believe, those of us who trust and have repented of sin and are still repenting of sin. Father, for the one, two, or three standing here this morning that do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, Father, I plead with you, O God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would work in their lives. Father, I plead with you that you would give them no rest, drive them back to the word of God again and again and again. Open their eyes to see the glory of a Savior and the darkness of their sin, to know what it is to be truly saved. Father, I plead with you also for all of us that know and love the Lord Jesus, that our lives would be continually given up. As Romans 12 and verse 1 says, offered as living sacrifices to you. Our whole lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, everything would be given up as a sacrifice to you to be used for your glory. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will work in each of us, convict us of sin and where it needs to be dealt with. Convict us, O God, we pray. Change us. Father, I plead with you that every single person walking out that front door this morning would be different than when they came in. That the Spirit of God would have taken and worked in their lives to change them. Father, we ask you, we plead with you, O God, Spark a revival in this church. Start with the leadership and work your way up throughout the whole congregation. Father, this is a work that only you can do by the power of your spirit, and we cry out to you for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.